I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, Work and Careers Editor, and each week I'm joined by our top commentators to talk about the business books they have selected to see you through turbulent times. This week I'm joined by Martin Wolfe, our Chief Economics Commentator, whose choice of book is Adair Turner's Between Debt and the Devil. Money, Credit and Fixing Global Finance, an analysis of the imperfections of our financial system. Hello, Martin. Hello. And joining us is the ever-popular Andrew Hill, FT Management Editor. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Before we get to this week's book, Martin, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've been preparing my list of summer books, so quite a number of books, but two that have particularly interested me is the book by Yanis Varoufakis, who became very famous as very briefly, the Greek finance minister, uh, when they wished to break out of the the straitjacket of Eurozone uh, financial and debt requirements. And his book is called Adults in the Room. And it's a wonderful account of his dealings with the Eurozone, the masters of debt, as he views them. And the another book uh, is by Andy Lowe, who's a very distinguished professor at the MIT Massachusetts Institute for Technology, on uh, adaptive markets, on the way we should think about financial markets and why classical theory, efficient markets theory, and all the rest of it is complete nonsense. So these are two, there are others, but two particularly interesting books. Can you give us uh, give us a sense of how you find time to read? You're incredibly busy. How do you make the time to read? Well, these sorts of requirements do focus the mind very helpfully. So I, as books come in, I put through, put in a sort of pile of the ones that look interesting. I, I start skimming them, time that I have available, the odd hour or so, and then I decide which books really are worth paying attention to. And uh, then in the month or two before the summer books event and then I have another one in December so the years I actually try and look through them very very carefully I don't let's be clear I don't necessarily read every one of the 12 books or so that are going to be um, recommended every word but I I manage to do so mostly on weekends you don't read every word no I don't (laughs) I don't I do read some books every word but not necessarily every word but I read most of the words Andrew's column a couple of weeks ago was urging chief executives to read more fiction. Do you have time to read fiction? Not anymore. I'm afraid this is one of my failings. I've discovered that pretty well every decade of my life, I have read less fiction than the previous decade. 
And I don't know whether this is because of lack of time or lack of emotional sympathy, which is no doubt a great fault. But I'm now, uh, I now really don't read much fiction. I focus almost entirely on non-fiction. Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading some fiction. I'm reading uh, Reservoir 13, which is a new novel by John McGregor set in the Peak District and overshadowed by the disappearance of a 13-year-old girl, but written in a way that sort of layers... Uh, season on season and describes the village where this girl disappeared. I'm not sure there's any management or business lessons from it yet. I'm only uh, two-thirds of the way through, so it's a rem- but it's a haunting book. I'm also just preparing for the deluge of books for our Business Book of the Year Award. Closing date for entries is June the 30th, and there's always about 250 books that come in there. A lot of that is an organisational process, but keeping an eye out, some of the books that Martin's mentioned are likely to be entries, almost certainly. Um, and I've noticed we've got quite a few gig economy-related books this year, Uber, Airbnb, they're, they're starting to come through. And inevitably, as we get still the backwash of the financial crisis, we have a number of books about various scandals, insider trading, LIBOR. There are some, some big investigative books this year, I think. Just give us an overview of the, the Business Book of the Year process. When does it start and where does it culminate? Well, we've put out, uh, as we usually do, a request for suggestions from FT correspondents, which is then followed up with uh, requests from specific reviewers who may have looked at books or indeed be aware of books that are coming out. Clearly, the main input comes from the publishers themselves putting in the books that are eligible up to mid-November. This is often the tricky period, is the one between June the 30th and mid-November, when some big books come out in September that, of course, nobody has yet reviewed. So getting an idea of what's on the horizon uh, is important. And we go through various layers of filtering to produce a long list, which is then read by our distinguished judges. The long list is published in... In August. August. Okay, so look out for that. Now on to our book of the fortnight, Adair Turner's Between Debt and the Devil. Martin, why is this a book for turbulent times? It doesn't offer much solace. Well, that's what I think is necessary in turbulent times. You have to understand the times you're in. That's the first thing. And only when you understand the times you are in can you decide what you should do as somebody in business and also very much what you can do from a policy point of view. It does, the book actually does put forward, I think, quite exciting and radical proposals for what we should do about it. But the core point, which I think is very, very important for business leaders, is to understand that over the last 20 years or so, and um, I actually think it is roughly 20 years because I believe the starting point was the Asian financial crisis, the world economy has been behaving in quite novel and very difficult ways, difficult to manage. And this analysis, which Adair offers, I think it's the best and clearest analysis of what those strange ways are and why that the result has been such a peculiar environment. So from the business point of view, it's now the case that for 10 years they've been operating in an environment of near zero interest rates, very low inflation, rather weak demand, high levels of debt, public and private, and no really 
powerful breakout from this situation. We are now seeing something of a cyclical upswing worldwide, which is very encouraging. But it seems to me that it clearly still falls within this basic paradigm that I've described. And what uh, Adair has done in the book is to say, well, what's going on here? Well, what he's basically saying, very similar to what I said in a book I myself wrote called The Shifts and the Shocks, was that we either have grossly deficient demand and are on the verge of deflation, that's, if you like, the devil in this, or some large set of players, either private or public or both, have to borrow an awful lot of money. And that's the debt. So we seem to be stuck between grossly inadequate demand and essentially unsustainable debt accumulations. And this is, I think, very, very similar to a different way of framing Larry Summers' very well-known rediscovery of an idea called secular stagnation. They're all aspects of the same thing. And the point is, we've been in this condition for 20 years. The financial crisis was the interruption of the first massive debt accumulation that caused an immense problem, which we've now solved by having this hyper-loose monetary policy and massive accumulations of public debt. Now the question is, are we breaking out into something fundamentally more stable or not? And my own view is that, that the analysis of Adair Turner, this sort of way of thinking about the world as a whole, remains very relevant and business should understand that's the macroeconomic environment in which they're operating. Adair Turner was chairman of the Financial Services Authority in the UK just after the global financial crisis struck in 2008. So he was in a prime position to write about this this sort of thing. You know him. Yes, I, he, he's been a friend of mine for a long time. To be fair, I think he was lucky. He was appointed immediately after the financial crisis. So as he will happily point out, so he can't be blamed for <laughs> it. And of course, from a, a professional point of view, his job turned out to be to wind it down since the British government proceeded to abolish it. It had been a creation of Gordon Brown. And one of the things that George Osborne wanted to do was to make clear that it was all Gordon Brown's fault. And by getting rid of Gordon Brown's uh, legacy, it would never happen again. So Adair's job uh, from a professional point of view was to wind the, the FSA down and it became all its functions went back to the Bank of England, which is where they are. But in the meantime, he produced... I think, an, uh, an exceptionally good report on the financial crisis as it had affected Britain for the FSA it was a, one of the earliest and best official reports, perhaps in some ways the best official report that I'd read on the crisis. And then he went off after he'd been dismissed uh, from by, since the FSA had disappeared, had nothing else to do except write this excellent book. And the book sort of steps back and says, as many of us were thinking, well, how did this happen? You know, this is obviously self-evident. The financial crisis is the biggest economic and political event in the Western world of the last, I would say, four and a half decades or so since the 70s, the great inflation of the 70s. It's reshaped, I think, everything political and economic. I think the financial crisis goes a long way to explain why we're seeing all this populism, for example. That's certainly affecting the world, isn't it? Uh, why, Brexit, Donald Trump's election, these are all reflections of the financial crisis. So why did the financial crisis happen? Some people think it's because the financial sector went crazy. Um, Adair argues, and I very strongly agree, that that's a symptom of this desperate need of policymakers to pursue a policy which created enormous amounts of debt. And if you create enormous amounts of debt, as 
some very wise economists like Hyman Minsky, whose name has become increasingly well known again, used to argue if you create enormous amounts of debt and enormous rises in asset prices to support it, because that's what monetary policy is doing, you're going to have a financial crisis. So the financial crisis is the symptom. It's not the cause. And after the financial crisis, then you really have a terrible demand problem because all the debt accumulation stops. So policy has been desperately trying to sustain demand in an environment where we are encumbered by excessive debt. And interestingly, though, this is not part of his book, but it's a very important point, is interestingly, and I think very significantly, China more or less then followed the same path because we stopped generating excess demand for for China, which allowed them to run an enormous current account surplus, which sustained their demand. As soon as the crisis happened, it's their current account surplus disappeared. And they responded then in exactly the way we had done to the Asian financial crisis, that's how I see the sequence, by accumulating an immense amount of debt in China. And they're now struggling with this. So this story, this fundamental story between debt and the devil remains, in my view, a central framing analysis of the world we're living in. And he makes the point, doesn't he, that it's not all debt that is problematic, that debt is not always bad, that when debt is directed correctly, it's a good thing. Of course. Capitalism has, from the very beginning, been built around institutions which create debt, banks particularly, not only, of course, debt, equity markets are also very, very important. But yes, the crucial thing is, ideally, debt works if it is used to finance the creation of productive assets. So assets whose returns exceed substantially, ideally substantially, but at least exceed the cost of the debt. One of the most important points that's a sort of, if you like, a subordinate element, but it's a crucial subordinate element in understanding why we have this demand problem, is that investment, which is obviously productive investment, the sort of investment that justifies large increases in debt, has actually been very weak in the Western world, really for the last 20 years or so, even more since the crisis. In fact, the only place in the world where debt investment has been fantastically strong over this period is China. So so when you start looking, very, very important, at, if you like, the, the counterparts of the debt, what were people borrowing for? Before the crisis, the answer, when you sort of strip out the complex web of borrowing within the financial sector, which sort of nets out, but the complexity was very important. It itself became part of the problem, but I'll leave that aside. When you strip that out in the Western world, the vast bulk of the borrowing was for consumption. And in fact, most of it was borrowing, a lot of it actually for consumption, not entirely, but a lot of it for consumption against housing. So there were big housing booms, particularly in the US, UK and Spain, but also in quite a number of smaller countries. There was also big commercial property booms. Now, if you think about the Western standard financial system, at the end of the, as I said, the complex chain of borrowing and lending within the financial sector, the, the, the originate and distribute model, which created securitized assets, all this complexity. At the end of it, there were households borrowing against the collateral of houses. This is most lending by banks, particularly here in, in the UK and in Europe, is collateralized in that way. So 
when the house prices rise, because interest rates were very low, real interest rates have been quite low since about late 1990s, even lower now. So house prices rose. It seemed very sensible to borrow against these rising house prices. And the banking sector created huge amounts of debt to finance exactly that sort of borrowing and that spending. A lot of it was just, in the UK particularly, just against the... um, the, the resale and resale of existing housing. So that's pretty close to a pure bubble. In US and Spain, there was also a huge amount of investment in housing. I mean, so that was also a big income and expenditure element in it. All that turned out to be unsustainable. House prices started falling. Once house prices start falling, all that collateral starts looking very dicey. From a bank's point of view, they look at it and they say, the collateral is now worth less than the loans. We've got all these borrowers with negative equity. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to stop lending. And as soon as they stopped lending, that meant the properties could no longer be sold. The property prices started to fall. That means that the securitized assets securitized against this, collateralized against this, became less valuable. People started panic. And that's how we ended up in the financial crisis. So that was the first stage. Then the governments came along and said, we can't let the whole economy collapse. There's no private spending anymore. We've got this massive financial crisis. We've had to rescue the whole system because of it. And they did. So now we've got government borrowing. And then, of course, that again, while necessary, I think, is not against valuable assets. So this huge increase in debt did not go with any increase in valuable physical assets and valuable assets more broadly. And that, of course, means that the debt overhang is a significant overhang for our society. By the way, China's got into a not dissimilar problem, I think, because a lot of the investment, not there's a lot of valuable investment in China, but the investment rate has been so high, about 45% of GDP, that a very significant part of that has also gone into property and isn't really generating much value. So debt, which explodes relative to GDP and doesn't have as its counterpart valuable investment, is a trap. But the alternative of not having the debt means we will be chronically short of demand and we would have had a collapse in our economies, a terrible recession or even a depression like the 1930s. And that was indeed the fear. So that's we're between debt and the devil, because if we don't generate the debt, we end up with the devil of depression. And that's a terrible place to be, even worse. So that is the story of where we are. Are there ways out? Well, that's another question. Yes, there are. But they're all quite difficult and we aren't out yet. Andrew, it's been a very rich year for economics tomes. What did you make of this book? We're going to be reading a lot of these. Yes, I mean, I looked at Adair's book when it came out last year and uh, it uh, was not one of the ones to make the long list for the book award. I was interested, well, mainly I find, I'm a non-economist, I find economics books sometimes a tough read. I know that Martin recommended a few years ago Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart's book, The... uh, This Time is Different. This This Time time is is Different. different. And I thought that was a shoe in for the um, for the list, but it was a tough read according to all the judges. And Adair Turner's book has a bit more of a kind of accessibility. But I, I'm interested, really, to know whether Martin, whether you think that the the accessibility of economics books undermines their kind of uh, economic weight. I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of technical knowledge that you have to be able to impart in your books as much as in uh, by other academic uh, writers. Does it undermine the kind of weight of the argument sometimes to uh, to become too accessible? It's an interesting question, but maybe most of us are 
just very bad at doing this. I have no doubt that what I write too can be probably more inaccessible than I realize. And it may be that part of the problem is that when economists are writing books on topics like this, they are really trying to do two things at the same time. They are trying to convince other economists that they know what they're talking about because these are very contentious areas. Yes. Everything that Adair's writing about or Rogoff and Reinhardt, which you refer to, my own book and all of the books are full of contentious arguments and they want to sort of dot I's and cross T's vis-a-vis the professionals to indicate that they understand the arguments and they understand the counter-arguments and they understand that they need to defend what their position is. And at the same time, they obviously have to be persuasive to a general public that does not even a business readership, not necessarily uh, economists, are not very au courant with the arguments. The reason why I think business people should sort of try and get themselves familiar with these arguments, this is a view I've held for a long time, long before all this, is the overall economic environment within which business operates, and surely they must realize this after the last 10 years or so, is a decisive determinant of their success. It's not the only one. Of course it isn't. Technology and all this rest of it is incredibly important, probably more important in, in the long run, for sure, maybe even shorter time periods. But the economic environment is crucial. If you don't understand the risks in the economic environment, I think you're going to make terrible mistakes in business. So if you thought that the great credit boom up to 2007 was an enduring one, sustainable one, and that you should build your business on the assumption that growth will continue like that, you would have been proved to be dramatically wrong. You're probably out of business. You're out of business. Reinhard and Rogoff argued, that's why it was a wonderful book, it's a very, very important book, that If you have a financial crisis like this, and you are likely to have one, they argued, it was written, remember, before the crisis, then uh, output and demand in the economy will be much smaller than you think. So we know now that by the end of this decade, under plausible assumptions, the developed countries' economies will be about a fifth smaller than people thought in 2006 and seven they were going to be by now. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That was a massive... I mean, that's a bigger shock, actually, than most world wars. So all I would say is that while they're not probably as sexy and exciting, and I don't think many economists are very good at writing sexy and exciting books, though I've read one or two, and I'm men- mentioning one or two, which are, I think at least very brief, which has an advantage. But they are important, and I think uh, I would encourage business readers to at least get the main messages out of this because our doubts about the economic environment, our efforts to try and understand the underlying processes at work really matter to them too. So something that occurred to me reading, again, Adair Turner's book was, you know, obviously he was a policymaker, and another book that came out last year, Mervyn King's book, The End yes. of Alchemy, also written by a former central banker in that case. I thought it was a wonderful book, and you didn't have that on the long list. Also, also didn't make the long list. But the But is there a question of, I mean, the power of the book versus the power of the policymaker? Would, would, if Adair Turner had become Bank of England governor, which was you know, mooted as a possibility... He was certainly one of the candidates, yes. Um, would he have had more effect, do you think, as, a, as Bank of England governor than as author of this 
book, which is obviously going in a more, in a, probably a more radical direction than any central banker yes. in office could go. I think that we don't know. I, I think we have to accept there are two points in making it. The, if you're going to be governor of the Bank of England, you have to operate within the framework of policy and institutions that have been given to you. And basically, at least in most times, it's about the competence with which you execute that brief. During 2007 and 2008 and early 2009, well, actually went on a bit, went on. There was an opportunity for extraordinary creativity in central bank. It became very controversial. It still is very controversial. They were quite creative. uh, They were amazingly creative. They did things that most people had not imagined. And I actually genuinely think that... Ben Bernanke in particular, but also Mervyn King and Mario Draghi subsequently have really changed the world. I mean, I think, for example, the Eurozone exists today because of what Mario Draghi did. And I think if Ben Bernanke hadn't been the great expert on the Great Depression, he was, there's a pretty good chance, I mean, really quite a good chance, that we would have been in Great Depression too. So, In times of crisis, having central bankers who know what they're doing is incredibly important. And there's a marvellous book, I don't know whether that was ever on the long list, by Leokwad Ahmed, a friend of mine, on the central bankers. It was a winner. It was a winner. It was a winner. Okay, it was the winner. Lords of Finance. Yeah, Lords of Finance. That was a really good read. Yes, it was a wonderful read. And he pointed out that the central bank governors, uh, heads of the 20s and 30s, had basically blown up the world. And so they were responsible in some very clear sense for the Great Depression, the Second World War. You know, Making a mess of this stuff is really bad. So I think if you are, we were very fortunate by and large in the people we had in charge of the central banks when we went into the crisis. They were all pretty competent. They'd all understood these lessons to a greater or lesser extent. They made different mistakes. Nobody's perfect in those environments. But I think we got at, through this because of them. So in those circumstances, doing those jobs is sort of life and death and unbelievably important. Most often it's not the case. So that's the first point. Most often it isn't. Um, But still, it's important. I mean, central bank governors are very powerful. You may not like it, but we operate in a system of government-made money and it's managed by the central bank and that's pretty important. They manage ultimately the conditions for the financial system and financing more broadly to work. Now, on the books, do books have influence? The probably you one writes books because you want to get something off your chest. That's so, so why I write books. So, to some degree, you're writing it for yourself. There's no doubt. You're to sort out your own ideas. How far do they influence the world? I suppose it's probably there's a sort of extreme power law here. You're sort of taking a bet that your ideas are both good enough or at least influential enough that the world will pick them up and focus their thinking around these ideas. You never know whether that will work. Uh, I think probably most, nearly all authors will find that their book doesn't have the influence they hoped for. That's life. But of course, very occasionally, somebody writes a book that changes the way people think. Obviously, probably the most famous example in economics in the last hundred years is Keynes's general theory of employment, interest and money. Now, I don't think any book has come out of the crisis yet, which gets, you know, even to the foothills of that. But I think writers have to keep going because it's the debate about ideas 
and books are important. It can't just be done in articles. The debate of ideas is how societies learn. It's never perfect, but if we stop that process of learning from what's happened, understanding where we are, thinking about where we're going, then we will become completely moribund. This is what, to me, defines our civilization. We're a society of people who think about what's happening to us, and the book is a central part of that. I have to confess, I'm, I'm not an economist, and I found this the toughest economics book I have ever read. I think, Andrew, you, you admitted to finding it quite tough going as well. Yeah, and I quite like the... Uh, I mean, what I should say, I quite like the the roots of... One of the roots of the of the book, as Adair Turner says at the beginning, is the interesting discussion he had at one point about socially useful, yes, uh, socially yes. useful jobs. In and he's extended that to socially useful debt and credit, which yes. is, I yeah. think, an interesting extension of something that he said at the height of the crisis was necessary to to look at. So from that point of view, uh, I was interested in how he extended that, but but it was. It was hard work for me. This is what I found interesting about it, because I stuck with it because I wanted to read it for the podcast. And by the end, I was really glad that I had done, because I found it very rewarding and, uh, you know, incredibly rewarding as a read. How do you both, as writers, how do you make complex ideas accessible? Um, you know, what what techniques can you use, particularly if you're you're writing not for your peers, but for the general reader martin i think one of the problems probably for me my problems and of course opportunities is that i'm writing for the readers of the financial times that's what i normally do and the truth is when i write a book really and truly i'm writing for the same sort of people i know it's not going to be a pot boiler in an airport i don't think i would know how to write such a book I'm not even sure that I would want to write such a book. I'm sure if you did, uh, the, it would do the, fantastically the, well. The, 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 I'm sure my publishers would rather I did. <laughs> but the, so my assumption is I write a book for somebody who I think is pretty literate and ideally a bit numerate and has some sort of interest in financial and economic affairs. It doesn't mean professionally, but it might be that person might be um, a civil servant, a politician, a journalist, a young person thinking maybe politics and economics are important. But still, I, it's pretty clear that I'm writing for people who are fairly informed and fairly engaged in these questions. In that context... Certainly when I write columns in books, I can explain a bit more. I tend to assume that as long as the argument is reasonably clear, you've pared it down so there's get rid of a lot of excessive verbiage and try and make the structure of the argument as clear as possible with supporting data. That's basically the best I can do. I understand that there will be some columns I write and some parts of a book which get quite technical in the sense, for example, that it's quite difficult to understand what I'm talking about if you don't understand how national income accounting works. So the basic accounting at the national income level or balance of payments accounting works. To explain all that in the book as well would, in my view, tend to add many, many pages and they would be very boring. So one has to start in writing about what I write about, 
some assumption of very basic knowledge. It's always difficult to know what you should assume, but that is a central element. Otherwise, you end up repeating all sort of elementary things in textbooks. You don't want to do that. Now, the other thing that people can do, which I'm not terribly good at, because I live very comfortably in the sort of arena of abstract argument. I like that. Um, But I think some people are extremely good at giving stories, anecdotes, stories that illustrate what's going on. I've tried to do that, particularly in my first major book on globalization. But it can be very difficult to do, and it can seem to me very artificial. But I think that's the second thing that one can try to do. But the honest truth is, I think it must be true in any relatively technical area, I'm sure science correspondents must have the same problem even to a great extent, is how much do you have to assume and how much do you have to explain? You can't explain everything. Otherwise, the book, which could be written in 200 pages, will end up as a 1,000 pages and no one will buy it and no one will read it. Andrew, how do you explain complex ideas? Well, I think I mean, I find myself at the less technical end of uh, business journalism and I started as an English graduate not knowing anything about business, let alone economics. So from that point of view, although I've always worked for the Financial Times, I hope I'm always conscious of the fact that there is a, a reader out there who doesn't know much about what I'm writing about. But even then, I'm still caught out occasionally by people saying, oh, I've tried some of your columns and they you know, really find it quite hard to get into them, even in the way that I write, which is probably more in the storytelling side. I mean, I tend to think if you've got a, a strong idea, as Martin says, you obviously want to be able to support it with evidence. In the case of writing about management, that's going to be evidence of people doing things in the way that you say they should be done and succeeding, or alternatively, and and as powerfully, sometimes more powerfully, evidence of people doing things in the wrong way and not succeeding. One of my colleagues, who shall remain nameless, did say when I took on the management editor job that it was a great job to be writing a column about because nobody knows how to do management, so you can write anything you like, <laughs> which I think is possibly over-cynical. Um, <laughs> but it, but it there is more leeway, I guess, to be able to choose some of the areas where uh, I want to focus. And most of the time, I'm still doing an element of what Martin describes, of sort of translating intermediary for people who might not understand the basics of business and trying to get that message across as clearly as possible. That's it from us. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will be discussing Studs Terkel's classic book, Working, with Sarah O'Connor, the FT's employment correspondent. That podcast will be published on July the 10th. And you can find all our podcasts in this series at ft.com forward slash business hyphen book hyphen club. My thanks to Martin Wolf and to Andrew Hill and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. And thank you for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.